A habit must be established before it can be improved. And a lot of the time we feel like, oh, I can't take action yet because I need to learn more. But the truth is, usually the best way to learn is by taking action. And so the two-minute rule helps you get over that perfectionist tendency, helps you get it out of this uh, cycle of planning and procrastination and start getting some results, start getting some feedback by taking that first action. Today's guest is the author of Atomic Habits, James Clear. Now, if you've not read Atomic Habits, it's one of those books that once you've read, you start to think about how those ideas can change your reality. Now, furthermore, once you've read the book and decide you like his direct and logical style, you might even give him a follow on Twitter and realize that he's one of the most interesting people to follow, offering daily knowledge bombs that accentuate what you might already assume about him, that he's turned random thoughts into meaningful expressions and created a habit of posting them on social media pretty much every day. Now, of course, James is not the father of thinking about habits at all, but having built up a newsletter around the topic for years before launching his best-selling book, he's simply a master of demonstrating what best practice looks like and how that impact can impact your future, which above anything else makes him a person you want to have this conversation with. So it's my pleasure to do that right now and fill your ears for the immediate future with all you need to know about habits and how they can help you be the best version of yourself. So James, welcome to the show. Hi, great to talk to you. So we always kick off with a quick fire round and today is obviously no different. So straight into it, cats or dogs? It's not a trick question, even though you can see my background. Dogs. Writing or reading? If I have to pick, I'll pick writing. Systems or goals? <laughs> systems healthy habits or outrageous natural talent mm. i guess i'll pick habits <laughs> i like that you don't seem sure about that surely the answer is habits uh, okay twitter twitter or instagram twitter your worst habit that you just can't master yet uh going to bed at a reasonable hour and you're stuck on a desert island and you can only take three things with you so what are they my wife my Leatherman, and Manual for Living by Epictetus. See, you actually sound like someone that's going to live. <laughs> Most of the answers we get, I'm like, I don't think you're lasting more than a week, but I think you're going to enjoy that week. You sound like you're, you're, you're setting up shop there, which is good. All right, we're going to crack on. So for context uh, to the audience, can we just do a quick summary of your story to date for some people that haven't um, yet come into contact with you? So why you are the habits guy and what gives you the insights that get you to the point of owning such a moniker? So the quick summary is I came into habits as a practitioner long before uh, I started writing or thinking about it. Most of my like intentional exposure to habits was through athletics. So I played baseball uh, for a long time, all the way through college um, and a variety of other sports growing up. I talk more about that in the book, but the short summary is that uh, I learned a lot about habits and small behaviors and practicing things and so on uh, through that. A couple of years after I was done with my formal education, I started my own business and began exploring and kind of writing about habits more. And that was when I came across the research and the science about it. I wrote two articles a week for the first three years. Um, and so over the course of those 150 articles or so, I uh, learned a lot about how habits work and how to explain them better and how to maybe describe some of the concepts in a way that was useful. And through writing about it every week, um, I sort of developed more of an expertise around it. And my audience grew and I eventually uh, used some of those ideas and the audience that I had there to write Atomic Habits, which is the 
I would say at this point, the main thing I'm known for. The book came out in October of 2018. And so it's been out almost two years now and uh, has sold over 2 million copies and kind of spread around uh, in a lot of different languages and whatnot. And for me, the most gratifying thing is that the ideas are useful. Uh, you know, the best thing is to see people using them to build better habits in their own life or to break habits that they've kind of been struggling with for a while. And so that's kind of my main thing is I, you know, I'm not the smartest person. I'm not the fastest person. I'm not the first person to talk about this stuff, but I want to do it in a way that's useful. And so whether it was um, through the articles or through the book, uh, I'm just trying to share ideas that that people can actually use and, and make actionable in daily life and work. So just quickly, you said, uh, you know, ha Atomic Habits is the thing you're mostly known for. What, what would you like to be mostly known for? So if it wasn't that I guess I would say just for being useful in general, uh, you know, for being providing ideas that are useful and helpful to others. That's kind of the big picture view. I sort of sometimes I, you know, I define what I do in different ways. And sometimes I think about defining it as increasing the distribution of great ideas in the world. Um, and so you got a couple different elements to that. Like we could ask, what is a great idea? Um, and certainly there are many different ways to think about it. But I think most of the really great ideas are useful. They hold up to reality. You can go too far one way or the other. Sometimes academics go too far and want everything to be uh, carefully researched in a lab-controlled setting, but life does not happen in a lab-controlled setting. And so I want it to stand up to reality. I feel like that's the ultimate test of an idea. Uh, and then other people go too far the other way and just only share things based on their opinion and don't have any grounding in science. And I think we need that as well. So, yeah, I kind of think about increasing the distribution of great ideas in the world as a good summary of what I'm trying to do. That'll just happen over time. You know, I'm working on a second book now. And so as I continue to put more books out, I think uh, Atomic Habits will become, it'll always be part of the picture, but maybe it'll be an element of it, not the whole thing. It is interesting, though, because it's a big idea um, rewritten every few years in, with a different take. And like a lot of these things, sometimes your idea is launched at the right time in society or not. And it's really hard to synthesize why or what that would be. You're not really in control of how long your book will take, despite a publisher's deadline and when it will come out. And so, you know, it just it feels like your book came out at the right time. People really willing and open minded to the idea, even if like from even if they'd read about habits before actually wanting to read a new take on it. Two million copies sold is an incredible feat for a, essentially a first time author. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was my first book. I thank you. I'm surprised by how it went as well. I'm, you know, I'm glad that, that uh, people are resonating with it and finding it useful. I don't know. I mean, I think habits are one of those topics that Jeff Bezos talks about this a lot with Amazon. Like they try to focus on what will not change. You know, what are going to be the things that are going to stay the same? Customers will always want prices to be cheaper. They will always want shipping to be faster. I think habits are one of those topics as well. You know, like habits will be just as relevant in 25 years or 100 years as they are today. They're part of a universal experience. We all have them. We all build them and we all can improve them, myself included. You know, I have plenty of things that I need to work on. So in that way, I, I like writing about things that are timeless uh, like that. And I also like writing about things that I have to use in my own life. I think it makes the ideas more reasonable, more trustworthy, more uh, real. The fact that I've failed on a lot of habits before, I feel like makes the writing better um, because I know what it's like to go through that, just like all my readers know what it's like to go through that. 
Now, obviously, um, with our audience being predominantly, uh, you know, people in businesses, startups, scale-ups, whatever that might be, I'd love to get some of your thoughts on um, how the the concept of our daily habits probably has changed massively from pre-COVID, of course, the magic word, uh, to post, right? So most people's habits are built around wake up at a certain time, go into the office, et cetera, et cetera, go on some kind of autopilot. And now more and more working from home, whether they like it or not, and different habits coming up and different systems having to be created. I'd love to get some of your thoughts about how to optimize that system change for people. So some people will have already tried to start, but some people might not have. So some insights and advice from you would be wonderful. Well, you know, there are a couple different ways to define what a habit is. Um, sometimes people define it as, oh, it's a behavior that's automatic or mindless, uh, you know, something you do like automatically, like brushing your teeth or tying your shoes. But there's another definition, which I like, which I think applies to the question you just asked, which is that um, a habit is a behavior that's tied to a particular context. And what you start to realize is that you cannot have a behavior outside of an environment. They all happen within a certain context. So you're your couch might be the environment where your habit of watching Netflix happens at 7 p.m. And what you find from this, and this is how it relates to the pandemic, anytime the environment changes in a big way, behavior changes in a big way. And we all have experienced that this year with, um, you know, working from home more frequently or, you know, being on lockdown or not being allowed to go into certain places or having to do things in different ways. As the environment has changed, your behavior has shifted. So suddenly, you know, your kitchen table is now your office, or it used to be that the pantry was miles away from you when you were at work, but now it's right around the corner and you can snack all day long. I mean, my bedroom is my office. This is a very special, like these recordings, I live for these because I'm allowed in the living room. It's great. <laughs> I think the question to ask yourself is, what is the environment that I'm spending time in? What is that optimized for? Because what you often find is that, you know, you're kind of inheriting these environments that were previously for different uses. And so they're not optimized for the behaviors that you want to occur. And maybe you can overpower your environment in the short run, but in the long run, the environment almost always wins. And so you want to optimize, prime your environment so that the good habit is the path of least resistance. So a couple examples of how I've done that this year. I knew I was going to be spending more time at home during the pandemic, and I thought, well, I'd like to use at least some of that time productively, so I want to read more. So I bought some books off my reading list. I've got, you know, four or five next to me on the desk here. I have a couple on the coffee table in the living room. I have a couple next to my bed. I'm sort of sprinkling books around the environment to make it really easy for me to pick one up and read. I also took the apps that are on the home screen of my phone. I moved them to the second screen and took Audible and put it in the home bar. So it was the first thing that I would see when I would open up my phone. So again, trying to prime the environment to make the good habit easy. If you look around, this also impacts your bad habits or things that, you know, let's just say behaviors people want to reduce. A lot of people feel like, oh, I'm watching too much TV. But walk into any living room, where do all the couches and chairs face? You know, it's like, what is that room designed to get you to do? And so this same line of thinking can be applied for reducing bad habits or building good ones. But I think the punchline is, you want to make your good habits obvious. You want them to be the first thing you see. You want to make them a very visible and available. You want to make your bad habits invisible. You want to hide them. This is why you want to unsubscribe from emails. Or if you're trying to not spend money on electronics, don't follow the latest YouTubers who review that stuff or unboxing videos or whatever. That's why biting your nails is the hardest habit uh, to crack, they say, which I did. 
um, after 31 years, but it's impossible because it's in your face. <laughs> Unless you're going to cut your hands off, you you have a very hard challenge. That's not how I did it, I'm pleased to say. And you also want to uh, make it difficult for bad habits. You want to increase the number of steps, you know, so increase friction and for bad habits, reduce friction. It's surprising how much little changes like that can help. Like they're not going to curb like a true addiction. But just to give you two more examples to wrap up, if I buy a six pack of beer and I put it in the front of the fridge, I'll drink one every night just because it's there. But if I tuck it on the lowest shelf and put it toward the back of the fridge where I like, can't really see it unless I bend down, sometimes it'll sit there for weeks and I won't even remember that I got it. Something similar happens with my phone. For the last year or so, I've tried to follow this rule where I leave my phone in another room until lunch each day. And it doesn't work for everybody, but it works well for me. And what's funny is that if I leave it next to me, I'm like everybody else. I'll check my phone every three minutes. But if I have it in another room, I have a home office. It's only like 30 seconds away, but I never go get it. And I'm like, well, did I want it or not? You know, like in one sense, I wanted it bad enough to check it every three minutes when it was next to me. But in another sense, I never wanted it so bad that I would work 30 seconds to go get it. And it's surprising how much a little bit of friction, a little bit of environment design can really help you uh, nudge you toward the more productive path and get those good habits to stick and bad habits to fade away. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. What do you think are like typically good and bad habits that are you know exuded from leaders? So if you get into a leadership position in in a company, 
whatever industry that might be, what do you think are typically the kind of strong positive habits that would likely get you to that point? And what are the negative habits to avoid once there? So I think one of the strongest habits to build once you're there is the habit of writing great memos or writing great, um, you know, you can use a different word if you want, letters, articles, emails, whatever. It's the Jeff Bezos thing, right? It's just a brilliant hack. It's a very high leverage action. You know, you look at Bezos, you look at Warren Buffett's annual shareholder letters, you know, pick, pick whatever example you want. But the nice thing about those memos is that they, one, they can scale. So you can have an organization of 500,000 people and you only, all you have to do is write one letter and it can get distributed to everybody. Um, two, they sort of become this like reference document that people can look back to, to refer to like, what are our values and principles? What do we stand for? What is the you know core elements of our culture? And so it's a way to kind of scale the culture in that sense. And the other thing that they can do, and this is particularly true if you're good at telling stories, is that they can act as heuristics or stories that people remember when they're making decisions themselves. So as an example, there's a book called The Outsiders. Uh, it's by William Thorndike. It's a business book that profiles these eight CEOs. And one of the stories that he tells is one of these CEOs who, um, when they started out in their career, he goes and he's working at a TV station, a cable station, and it's in Buffalo, New York. It's this little office. He goes in on his first day and they tell him, uh, hey, we need to repaint the building. We're due to like, you know, update that. And he said, well, only paint the side that faces the street. And over the next 30 years or so, he rose through the ranks, eventually became CEO of the company. And that story kind of followed him along everywhere because cost cutting was one of his big initiatives. And so every time there was a budgeting meeting, every time there was a question about do we spend on this or not, it was like, how much do we care about cost cutting? So much that we only paint the side of the building that faces the street. And memos can be a great place to distribute that information uh, and kind of get that culture to, to stick. So I think that's one habit that's really helpful. The second one that I'll mention is a habit of, I guess we could call it refinement or curation or filtering. In organizations, particularly the bigger the organization gets, there's a lot of bloat in the number of tasks that are performed, in the features that are in the product. You need to be continually revisiting things and say, Can, what is essential? Can we cut this? Do we need this anymore? It's kind of like as corporations age, it's like they wear a weighted vest and they keep tossing a little weight into it and it just gets heavier and heavier and slower moving. And if you don't have that habit of refinement and editing and curation, if you don't have a continual process or cycle of getting back to what's essential, then you're often pulling a lot of weight that isn't really making that big of a difference. So another way of saying this is just a habit of using the 80-20 rule, just constantly saying, what are the minority of our actions that drive the majority of our results and revisiting that again and again. And um, I think corporations that stay lean and quick and fast and high leveraged, they do a good job at that. So what about bad habits? What are the most obvious bad habits that you think you'd uh, see from leaders to avoid? Well, not offering praise is a pretty common one, I think, um, particularly if you're in a high results environment. Everybody cares about outcomes. The world is very result oriented, but it's so obvious. I The example that I think is great for this comes from Peter Kaufman. He's CEO of Glenair. And the example he gives is imagine that you get a new puppy and you bring this puppy home and it's scared. The first night that you have it, it's shivering in the corner. It's yelping. It's not quite you know certain. It is, it's worried. And how do you overcome that? 
you overcome it by showing them love and praise and safety and hugging them and feeding them on a regular schedule. And over the course of the first few weeks, not only does that puppy become more certain, does it become less stressed, it also buys in entirely. It like starts to become connected to you. It loves you deeply. And all you have to do is you have to show up and be reliable and care for it. And the same exact thing applies to your employees. Um, people, when they start a new job, they want to do well. They want to be praised. They want to be rewarded. They want to feel certain. They want to feel safe. And it's funny, but most CEOs don't treat their employees with the same care that they would treat a puppy. And that doesn't mean that you treat people like dogs, but it does mean that you treat them with care and affection and you actually are genuinely empathetic towards them. And if you want a staff that has fully bought in to your vision, if you want a group of people that are willing to work for you and care about you as a leader, you have to show that to them first. Peter Kaufman's been a great example of that, and the results of Glen Eyre have been remarkable as a result of it. But you don't see that as often as you would like. I think that's probably a habit that's that's missing. Okay, now... Um, obviously, you know, it's not like I'm trying to outsource my hard work and uh, I've run out of excellent questions, but uh, we're very lucky to have quite an active audience. I invited them to ask some questions to you and got a whole bunch of questions. So if you're ready to uh, hear arguably much more intelligent, well thought through questions than mine, um, we've got a former guest, actually, co-founder of food waste sharing app Olio, who have just gone national in partnership with Tesco for their millions of users, who asks... What advice do you have for perfectionists such as her who find themselves falling into the mindset of it's all or nothing? You know, if I'm not perfect in my healthy habits, I've failed. So her name's Sasha, by the way. Yeah, it's a great question. I think a very common thing that people deal with with habits. What I would recommend is what I call the two minute rule. And I unpack this more in Atomic Habits, but just the quick summary is take whatever habit you're trying to build and you scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. So Read 30 books a year becomes read one page. Do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. Call 25 clients a week becomes make one sales call. And individually, those actions don't sound like a whole lot. You know, sometimes I tell people this and they're like, okay, buddy, like I know the real goal isn't just to take my yoga mat out. I know I actually am trying to do the workout. So if this is some kind of mental trick, then like, why would I fall for it basically? But I understand where people are coming from, but I have this reader, his name's Mitch. I mentioned him in the book. He ended up losing a lot of weight. And for the first six weeks that he went to the gym, he had a rule for himself where he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he'd get in the car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it sounds ridiculous, right? You're like, obviously, this is not going to get the guy the results that he wants. But if you take a step back, you realize that he was mastering the art of showing up right? He was becoming the type of person that went to the gym four days a week, even if it was for only five minutes. And this, I think, is a much deeper truth about habits and gets directly to the heart of this question, which is that a habit must be established before it can be improved, right? It has to become the standard in your life before you can scale it up and optimize it into something more. And a lot of the time we feel like, oh, I can't take action yet because I need to learn more. But the truth is, usually the best way to learn is by taking action. And so the two minute rule helps you get over that perfectionist tendency, helps you get it out of this uh, cycle of planning and procrastination and start getting some results, start getting some feedback by taking that first action. Um, so I think that would be my recommendation if you're kind of struggling with that challenge.
Steph Lewandowski, who is the founder of so many things, it's actually hard to list them. But most recently, he's helping kids learn at home with Oak National. He wants to know what your views are on serendipity and spontaneity. So as he calls it, the anti-habit. How do you ensure you don't just become a dull, boring, repetitive person, not open to randomness or chance? Yeah, that's a good question. There, This is a common criticism of habits. You know, oh, I don't want to pigeonhole myself. I don't want to become a robot. What about spontaneity and creativity and freedom and staying open to the next opportunity? My response is that's a false dichotomy. Um, habits don't restrict freedom. They usually create it. It's actually usually the people with the worst habits who have the least amount of freedom. So it's the people with the worst financial habits that are always wondering where's the next dollar going to come from. It's the people with the worst fitness and health habits who always feel like they're running low on energy. It's the people with the worst reading and learning habits that always feel like they're behind the curve. So it's, it's actually by mastering your habits that you create the capacity to take advantage of new opportunities and have the space in your calendar to uh, take advantage of the spontaneous thing. So, you know, I'm not advocating for scheduling all 24 hours of your day and having your calendar mapped out to the minute. But uh, I do think that building reliable habits in the areas that are most important in life will actually create more freedom for you, not less. But, you know, just a snapshot, what is your calendar like? You know, it's going to be an obvious question people would want to know. So I'll jump in between the questions. What was it like pre-pandemic? What was it like post-pandemic? Hmm. Generally, I try to keep a pretty open calendar. I think people would be surprised by how much free time I have in my usual week. Um, I don't know, maybe the assumption is, oh, the habits guy like probably wants to have everything scheduled, but actually it's the opposite. Um, so I have one standing meeting, uh, each week on Thursday afternoons with my team. And otherwise my calendar is open for whatever needs to be dealt with that particular week. Usually there's, I would say two to three calls that happen at some point throughout the week, depending on what we're working on. And otherwise my time is spent reading and writing. I usually find that the most important thing in my business is the quality of my ideas. And if my ideas are weak, it's usually because I'm not reading enough, not because I'm not writing enough. And so those are the two things that I try to make sure I have space for. Exercise is a personal thing that also bleeds into business because I'm much better at work when I'm uh, exercising consistently. Uh, and so I just do that in the evenings, um, four days a week. Fair enough. Right. Back to the much more intelligent question. So Gabby Kahane, the founder of Purpose Mission and Vision Branding Agency Multiple asks, what are your three, two, one most powerful habits that you've personally integrated into your life? So I think the things that have made the biggest difference for me, I don't think I would still be an entrepreneur if I hadn't worked out consistently. I've been an entrepreneur for as of a couple of weeks ago, 10 years. And I don't know that I would have made it through that decade in the kind of the emotional roller coaster that's associated with starting a business uh, without that. So that's been a big one. Reading is a huge one, which I also have already mentioned, because that's sort of it's reading in a broad sense. Like it's not just books. It's also what I'm reading on Twitter. It's also what I'm reading through online articles and so on. And all of that is essentially crafting your information flow. And pretty much every thought that you have is downstream from what you consume. So creating great information flows, I think, is a really powerful skill, a really important thing. I've spent a lot of time thinking about that and trying to improve that. So reading is another big habit. And then the third one, which is kind of obvious for someone who's an author, but I do think it applies to people who don't write for their job, is writing publicly. Sharing your ideas publicly, I think, is probably the single best networking strategy. 
Um, when you share your ideas publicly, like-minded people find you. Your work becomes like a magnet. And it's much more effective than all the other networking strategies you usually hear about, like networking cocktails and going to conferences and uh, cold emails and stuff like that. Nothing will bring as much inbound, interesting, like-minded people as sharing work publicly. So those are the three that I feel like have made some of the biggest difference for me. Great. Um, a question from, and I think you'd love his business, Ben Keen, who's the founder of Rebel Book Club. Uh, asks if you've ever worked with anyone with serious addictions, aka drug, sex, or violence, as it would be amazing to see your skills and knowledge being applied to those who are suffering. And then connected to that, um, he wants to know, can generational trauma be broken or changed with atomic habit type methods from your knowledge? Okay, so first, just to make sure everybody's on the same page. So I don't really do consulting or coaching or like work with people individually. Usually when I work with companies, it's like in a keynote capacity or some kind of workshop capacity. So I'm just in there for a day. I'm not like staying there for a long time and trying to troubleshoot or anything. Also, I don't consider myself an expert on addiction. I don't really consider myself an expert on anything, but certainly not on addiction. And uh, I didn't write the book for that reason, but... I have heard from a lot of people who either work with addicts, have family members who are addicts or have dealt with addiction, dealt with addictions themselves, who have said the book has been really helpful. And that's interesting to me, because I think one thing it shows is there's a little bit of this universality to human behavior. If it applies to good habits and bad habits, it, it probably applies in some sense to addictions as well. The other thing is that I was surprised by how much two factors came up again and again. The first one is environment design, which we've already talked about. So the importance of kind of priming your environment. There are some things that I talk about in the book. Specifically, there's one Vietnam study related to heroin use that seems to apply particularly. But the other thing that came up a lot is the importance of the social environment. And this is one topic that since the book has come out, I think is even more important than I realized when I wrote it. So many habits are shaped by the social environment that we're in. And we all are part of multiple tribes. Some of them are large. Some of them are small, like what it means to be a neighbor on your street, what it means to be a member of the local CrossFit gym or to volunteer at the local elementary school. And all of those habits, large and small, they are sorry, all of those tribes, large and small, have a set of shared habits, a set of shared expectations for how to act in that environment. And those social norms really influence the choices that we make. You know, like um, we're on this call right now. We're doing this interview. I could be wearing a bathing suit right now, but I'm not, right? That would be weird. It would violate the social expectation for how you act in some kind of Actually, you know, that would be meeting setting. my social expectation, if anything. <laughs> That's what I expected. Oh, next question was going to be, what are you actually wearing under the table? Yeah, a tutu. Or uh, let's say you move into a new neighborhood and you walk outside on Tuesday night, you see your neighbors mowing their lawn and you're like, oh, I need to mow the grass. Well, partially you want to do that because it feels good to have a clean lawn, but mostly you want to do it because you don't want to be judged by the other people in the neighborhood for having the, the dirty lawn or being the unkempt, uh, sloppy one in the neighborhood. And that social expectation will get you to stick to that habit for as long as you live in the house for the next 30 years. We wish we had that level of consistency with our other habits. So the punchline, if I'm going to make that part practical, is you want to join groups to join tribes where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. Because if it's normal in that group, it will be attractive and natural for you to stick to it. It's going to be a signal to the people around you, hey, they get it, they belong, they're part of us. 
And um, belonging is one of the deepest needs that we all have. You know, like if you have to choose between I don't have habits that I really love, but I get to belong, I get to fit in, or I have the habits that I want, but I'm cast out, I'm, I'm an outsider. Most people will choose belonging over loneliness. The desire to belong will often overpower the desire to improve. So you want to make sure you get that social environment right. That just reminds me of a quote from another one of my favorite authors, Johan Hari, who writes uh, a book called Lost Connections, all about this and about addiction. And um, the quote is, humans need tribes like uh, bees need hives. And I think it's a perfect, a perfect example of, uh, or, or segue at the very least from your statement there. Right, we've got Armin Sheikh who, from Bloverse who asks, with so many life hacks and self-help content, sometimes it gets a bit overwhelming. So what is the single most important habit to sustain a healthy mindset amidst, amidst chaos when building a startup or product? When building a startup, what is the most... So specifically for building a startup, what's the most important a, habit a for A startup or chaos? product. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And that product could be a book, so you can relate it to your experience. There are a lot of things to focus on whenever you're building a new product. And I think the the challenge is that you can often, it's so hard in the beginning because you are the only person or you have a very small team. And so you're being asked to do many different things. You're being pulled in all kinds of directions. And so the skill that is really crucial to develop and is constantly hard because you're always trying to upgrade it is learning to say no to good uses of time. So if you're doing it right, the things that you used to do like two years ago or four years ago, those are now the opportunity cost is too high. So you should be saying no to those things now and you should have upgraded to an even better use of time. And so I guess the habit that I would pick is a habit of reflection and review of your priorities. Um, and, you know, you're going to have to work hard. You're going to have to execute. That's just table stakes. But you also need to make sure you're executing on the right thing. A lot of work and energy and effort gets wasted because we are working on items, say, number four or five or six on your to-do list. And those are the most dangerous items because you can always rationalize doing them. You're like, oh, it's kind of important. It's number four on my priority list. But actually, especially when the team is small and energy and talent or uh, energy and attention are limited, you have to say no to good uses of time so that you can focus on great uses of time so that you can dedicate your energy to priorities one, two and three. And so I think a habit of continually reviewing those priorities is probably one of the most important things. Actually reminds me of a habit that I've tried to build for myself, which is uh, reading Seven Habits of Highly Effective People regularly, which has this like perfect framework, essentially of exactly that, um, you know, the urgent and, and important framework, and just really perfectly helps you understand, is this really the most like, high value thing that I could be doing with my time? And I used to literally write out that matrix and put it in front of my screen until it became a habit because it's a very hard skill, like you say. I mean, the visual cue of seeing that. It's And the other thing that's hard is um, if you do it well one day, that doesn't get you anything the next day. You have to do, you have to make the decision again the next. It's a it's a battle that you have to fight anew every day. And that's one thing that makes it challenging. But that's also why there's an edge in it. That's why there's an advantage to the for the people who do it. Um, you have to pair that with a long term mindset, too. I mean, usually the things that are in that important box are not also in the urgent box. And so you need to be thinking long term uh, if you're one, if you uh, want to really do that, I think, in the most powerful way. OK, 
Okay, final question from the audience. So James McCauley from musician booking platform Encore wants to know what bad habits have been hardest to break for you and do you still succumb to them? And what is your vice? I think I mentioned this during the quick uh, fire round at the beginning, but going to bed at a reasonable hour is one that I struggled with. I struggled with it a lot when I was writing Atomic Habits. What is a reasonable hour to you? Well, I have this rule for myself where I don't cheat myself on sleep. So I, I definitely get, I try to get like at least eight hours every night. But I get this second wind around like, say, 9 p.m. where I'm like, oh, maybe I'll just answer a few emails or maybe I'll just work for a little bit. And of course, it's never just for a little bit, right? You turn around, it's like midnight or 1 a.m. and you're still working. And if I'm going to sleep for eight hours and I go to bed at one, well, that means I'm sleeping until nine. And I know that that's not what I want the next day. I usually work better when I get up earlier. Um, so it kind of you compromise the next day by not uh, doing the right thing the night before. So that's one that I struggled with for a long time. The The thing that finally got me to change it was getting a dog because getting a, the dog doesn't care that you do, you went to bed late. They want to go for a walk at 7 a.m. And so you need to get up either way. And it's interesting how often that's the case for people when something permanent in the environment changes. You get a dog, you move to a new city, you take a new job, you get married, you get pregnant. These are big lifestyle changes that often you'll see habits shifting in a big way. But, you know, that's just one example. Uh, there are many, many things that I've struggled with over the years. Um, I don't know. I, I don't really berate myself too much for the bad habits if I'm doing a good job of getting the big good habits in place. And that's, I would say that's kind of where I fall on it is I try to crowd out the bad habits by building good ones. Um, and I don't worry too much about the bad ones. Um, so I just want to focus on, am I getting my workout in? Am I reading a little bit each day? Am I writing a little bit each day? And if I'm doing those things, I'm not going to kill myself for not being perfect. Um, although I would, of course, like to, you know, resolve some of those things as well. Of course. Okay. Uh, starting to wrap up now. Do you use any like apps or like how do you track your habits? Do you need to track them? Do you use apps? Do you use paper? Do you journal? Like give us some tips here. I only track the most important ones. It's interesting. I thought about this the other day. I, um, I've made good progress in the gym with, uh, with weightlifting and I've been tracking my workouts for, you know, a decade. I have all the notebooks on the shelf over there. And I always struggled with nutrition in comparison to, to the gym. And it's only recently that I started tracking what I was eating and boom, like magic, suddenly I get better at it. And it's interesting to me that that was all I really needed to do. Um, the same thing is true in my business. You know, the things that matter most to me, specifically book sales and email subscribers, I have spreadsheets for both of those. And I track them every week for how much we're growing and who's coming in new and all that type of stuff. And again, because I track it, I always know where it's at and I'm always focused on it, at least in the back of my mind. And like magic, I get better at it because I'm paying attention to it. And so I don't think you need to track everything. I don't track most of my habits. I don't track, for example, uh, how many books I read a year. But I do think that for the most important things, it's really helpful to have some form of measurement. Otherwise, you're just kind of guessing on whether you're making progress or not. And uh, I prefer not to guess about the things that really matter. Absolutely. And as the OKR Grandmaster John Durr would say, measure what matters, obviously. So pick pick them and choose wisely. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received and who is it from? My answer is maybe a little different than what you're looking for, but I think it's the best thing I've come across so far, which is that advice is fairly brittle. And what I mean by that is it's very, it has a very narrow window in which it applies. Um, the world is dynamic. It's not static. So circumstances are always changing. 
And even if somebody gives you a good piece of advice, even if it was a really good idea, it may not apply to your goals. It may not apply to this situation. It may have applied in the same industry, but two years ago and not right now. And so what I have found is that I like questions more than I like advice. For example, one question that you could ask yourself is, what is the work that I do that keeps working for me when it's done? And that question really helps me identify what are the high leverage things I should be focusing on. And I actually find that more helpful than someone saying, hey, here's a really high leverage piece of advice. You should do this. I actually have a, I find it more helpful to have that question and continually search for it. Or the question, I've been doing this one for the last couple of weeks. I'll start my day by opening up a notebook to a blank page and I'll just write at the top, what do I really want? And it's surprising how helpful it can be to ask yourself the same question again and again, because your date, your answers get more precise each day. There are some things that you think you wanted, but it turns out you don't really, or there's some stuff that you thought was the end goal, but actually that's just a middle step and you can cut it out entirely and just jump to the thing that you actually want. I think a lot of people, myself included, know what we want generally. We like sort of know what we want out of life. We want to be healthier, or more productive, or to find love, or to reduce stress, to make more money. But we don't know what we want precisely. Uh, we don't know exactly what we want for us. We want your average day to look like. And the better that I've been able to answer that question, the better I can come up with good action steps. And of course, that question, what do I really want, is going to change throughout life. Like I'll probably want something very different in 10 years than I do now. And so more than any individual piece of advice, I think it's actually that question that is having good questions is I think more flexible and more valuable than having good advice. So I'm kind of on a quest to find good questions. And those are a couple of the ones that I like. Absolutely. The quality of your life is defined by the quality of your questions. To a large degree, I think that's probably true. It's like the most important conversation you have is the one with yourself. And that's largely the questions that you ask yourself each day. So if you ask yourself good questions, you end up taking good actions. Well, my final question in every interview is what's the best piece of advice you have for our listeners? But instead, I'd like to know what the best question you have for our listeners is, please, James. All right. So here's another question I like, which is, uh, can my current habits carry me to my desired future? And if they can't, if there's a gap between what you intend, what you hope for yourself, what you really want, what your desired future is, and what your current habits are, something needs to change. Uh, and so I like to, you know, it's a little bit of a hard question to sit with and to be honest with, but I think if you are, it reveals opportunities for improvement. I think you're spot on. James, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips, and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. This is really for me saying women who are never going to code, I can't code. Women who are never going to be engineers or data scientists in AI, but women who are going to be in marketing, in sales, in finance, assistants in shops. The AI is coming for their jobs. The AI is going to be something that they will need to work with if they're going to be better at their jobs than somebody else.
That was Tabitha Goldstaub, the founder of Cognition X, the chair of the UK's AI committee, who's going to be joining us to share how to talk to robots and the future of artificial intelligence globally. Tune in or you'll miss out. This episode was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta. I encourage you to follow me on social at Dan Murray-Serta for all sorts of stories on mental health and entrepreneurship. But we've also got our social channels at Secret Leaders back up and running now too. So go follow us there, particularly our brand new YouTube channel, where you'll be able to see interviews just like today's on video. If you enjoyed today's episode, screenshot and tag us to share the episode or tweet us. It means a lot. And if you really loved it, why not review us please too? It only takes a second. This episode was produced by Rich Martel, with editing done by Harry and Daniel at Lower Street Media, artwork by Christina Naru, and marketing support from Charlotte and Alicia at Mags Creative, and bringing it all together seamlessly, our newest team member, Will Stolomon, as the head of podcast. Thanks for the great teamwork, guys, and see you next week.